This is episode number 751 with Dr. Rasmus Rote, co-founder of Morantix. Today's episode is brought to you by Oracle NetSuite Business Software, by QuickChat, customized AI assistance, and by Profits of AI, the leading agency for AI experts. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast, the most listened to podcast in the data science industry. Each week, we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. I'm your host, John Crone. Thanks for joining me today. And now, let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. Today I'm joined by the AI mega entrepreneur, Dr. Rasmus Rota. Rasmus is a co-founder of Morantix, the comprehensive ecosystem that finances, incubates, and scales AI companies, transforming existing industries and spawning new ones. Morantix includes a venture studio that builds transformative AI startups from the founding team up. It also includes a venture capital fund that invests in AI startups. It has Morantix Momentum, a consulting partner for AI development and operation, and the Morantix AI Campus, a slick physical location in Berlin that is Europe's largest AI co-working hub. It houses over a thousand entrepreneurs, researchers, investors, and policymakers. And you may recall, if you've been listening to this show a lot, that a couple of months ago, I recorded a few episodes there. All right, so in addition to Morantix, Rasmus has done other things as well. He co-founded and co-leads the German AI Association, a role that has him regularly providing policy guidance to Europe's top politicians. He scaled to 150 million users, a deep learning-powered service that analyzes faces, and he studied computer science at Oxford, at Princeton, and ETH Zurich, culminating in a PhD in machine vision. Today's episode will be of great interest to anyone interested in commercializing and scaling AI. In this episode, Rasmus details what makes a great AI entrepreneur, how to best raise capital for your own AI company, how to ensure your AI company is well defended from competitors, and what the future of work could look like in the coming decades as AI and robotics overhaul industry after industry. All right, you ready for this phenomenal episode? Let's go. Rasmus, welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. It's awesome to have you on here. Where are you calling in from? I'm calling in from Berlin. Great to be here, John. Of course you're calling in from Berlin. We're going to talk about Berlin and Europe a fair bit in this episode, what you've been doing, uh, specifically with Morantix, your AI campus. Very exciting. Um, And I was recently there. So several recent episodes of the podcast were recorded live uh, in Berlin at the Morantix AI campus, but I had so many interviews while I was there that I didn't get to interview you. And so we're doing this one remote, um, but we've known each other for a very long time, I guess since around 2009 or 2010 would be about right. When did you start at Oxford? I started 2009, so definitely not before, and it must have been like 2009, 10, um, when we were running the Entrepreneurs Club there, right? Um, yeah, so. exactly. Still yeah, the Oxford entrepreneurs. Yeah, and it's amazing uh, what you've been doing since. So, doing a PhD where a project of yours took off at ETH Zurich, doing a, a, a deep learning PhD uh, and having a machine vision application absolutely take off. If we have some time at the end of the episode, we'll talk about that a bit. Uh, and then, yeah, 
uh, eight years ago, which seems like a lifetime ago in the AI space, you founded Morantix. So this is a Berlin-based AI ecosystem that builds and funds AI ventures, but it also has a physical co-working campus. So that's where I was when I was in Berlin. It was my home away from home and the atmosphere was incredible. I don't, dozens, hundreds of different companies. I mean, and and I mean, the total roster, I mean, several hundred people, I think it might be pushing a thousand people that are in your community. You probably know the numbers better than me, but just an amazing space to be events basically every day bringing the community together. Uh, I've never seen anything like it anywhere. Thanks. No, it was great having you. And I mean, you were also part of the community. You made it also awesome for a weekend. I mean, hopefully hopefully you come back and and you know spend more time here, um, maybe record some more podcasts. I'm, I, I'm sure there's plenty more interesting people to interview there also on the campus. It's actually 100 different companies, 1,500 people, members, around 700 working desks, and 250 events this year. So been pretty much one every working day it's i mean yeah, i lost wow. the overview of what's going on so very active <laughs> community it's incredible uh how did it all start how did you get into creating a community like that so as an as an incubator and investor in ai we always had our own companies co-located and at some point we were looking for a new office and we wanted to keep the co-location of our companies because we saw a lot of value in this knowledge exchange and you know being in the same physical office and then there was a question about how big we'll do the next office and um, basically then the idea was, okay, like, why don't we do it much bigger? Because then we firstly can grow into it, but we can also co-locate some companies of friends. And so that's how the whole idea got started. Then we found the space. It was much bigger than we had anticipated, but we were like, okay, why not? There is not one hub for AI yet in Berlin. Um, so let's just create it. And so we very naively signed the lease. Then COVID hit, made the whole thing more interesting. Nobody needed office space anymore. <laughs> but um, I guess at some point, yeah, we could convince enough crazy people to still relocate and co-locate and um i think also i think the advantage of the COVID thing was that um basically people also rethought the office as a concept not maybe like a space where you go in every day but more one to meet and exchange and work together and so luckily we could design the whole office in that way that it's really focused on collaboration rather than you know everybody in their own office and yeah now it's a really vibrant community yeah yeah for sure and you deliberately designed things like having just one coffee space. So even though the campus sprawls over many floors and something that surprised me when I got there is it's even, it kind of, it even kind of feels like separate built. I realize it's not different buildings, but like, it's like there's, it, it really has a sprawl where it isn't just kind of one elevator bank takes you to, takes you to all the floors. There's like sections over in another part. Uh, and so it really has a sense of sprawl, but you nevertheless have just one free coffee machine in the center of everything which kind of uh, encourages collaboration. Yeah, you need to force people together. And coffee, I guess, is the, the common force and tea. So, um, yeah, it's, it's really cool. I mean, like sometimes when I have a few minutes, uh, I'll just hang out at the coffee machine and there's always like two or three people I meet, sometimes new ones, sometimes people I have seen, haven't seen for some time. Um, and then, you know, some that then quickly moves to like, oh, there's an opportunity, something we can do together or we should discuss something and, that's great. I think that's that's kind of the spirit of the campus. So yeah, so uh, two years ago, we had Nicole Butner, who also is in the leadership at Morantix, but she's specifically, she's responsible for this Morantix momentum part um, that helps businesses, um, I guess, primarily in Europe to be able to accelerate their AI roadmap or scope out projects or implement AI projects. Um, and so, yeah, so if people want to listen to a lot about Morantix Momentum, they can check out episode number 543, 
I don't know if there's anything else in particular you want to add on that, uh, Rasmus, but I think the, the key thing is that, so there's the AI campus, there's this Morantics momentum, there's also your actual fund, which can be funding uh, startups. And um, so, yeah, so maybe you want to talk about the fund a bit and specifically, you know, for our listeners, if they're interested in either getting funding for their early stage startup or uniquely, I mean, I'm not aware of any other place doing what you guys do where you'll actually take applications for founders who don't necessarily have co-founders, who don't necessarily have a particular idea. And you just take these founder applications and you help them figure out the team, you help them figure out the idea, and then you fund it and help them grow. I think this is a unique model. So I left you with a lot of options there to kind of dig into. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, like our core where we are coming from is really this uh, investing and incubation approach where we basically work with founders, pre-idea, pre-team. Um, sometimes they bring ideas. Often also we bring ideas of so space we are excited about. And then we ideate with them together, help them build the co-founding team. Um, help also with um, getting first design partners and then fund the company with an initial check of a million euros. Um, that's where we're coming from. And that way we have actually built like 10 mostly deep vertical AI companies. Um, but actually now also the fund starts to expand uh, as of um, 2024 to, to directly invest in early stage AI companies. Um, and I think that's a bit related also in total to our broader platform, as you just mentioned, because basically we can have companies co-located. We have a lot of potential customers you know, big Fortune 500 companies co-located. We have the services company that is working with a lot of SMEs and bigger companies. Uh, we have a lot of deep technical expertise there. I mean, Randix Momentum is also approaching 100 people in terms of team size. So also, uh, if we, we can help with due diligence on investments, we can help on the go-to-market side. We can help with customers. We can bring you to our AI community. We can help you if you sell to other AI communities. And so as such, I think we're quite quite an interesting or way of starting a company if you're just like co-located with us and ideate with us as well if you already started an AI company um, you know consider us maybe as one of the investors I think we're we're in that sense very different because we we're building stuff we are operators and not in the past but right now uh, we continue to build this platform and I think that can be quite powerful when when you want to build a company in this space are you primarily investing in European AI startups yeah, big focus is Europe, just because I think that's also where you um, get the benefits of our ecosystem. Now, I think there's you know companies from Europe that maybe moved to the US, maybe did YC, where we know them early. That's still something we could invest in. Or if there's an interesting startup that wants to build an engineering team in Europe or wants to go to market in Europe, or you know for some reason we can add value, then I think we would also be open to that. I think ultimately we're pragmatic, but um, you know probably we're not best position to see every single AI deal at the West Coast. Um, they're better and more local folks to do that. But I think for some some companies, we can still be uh, the right partner. Nice. That makes perfect sense. And talk us through a little bit about the mechanics of if somebody, so we have, let's say we have a listener right now who's thinking, I want to be an AI founder. I have an amazing background. Um, you know, they, they maybe they come from a, a business background or they come from a tech background. And they want to make the plunge now. They're here. They're obviously experiencing all of the noise around AI right now, and they think, you know, now is the time for me to take my chance and, you know, leave my corporate role or what, or my academic role, and to to go out and create an AI startup. Um, but I'm not exactly sure what to do. So this Morantics thing that Rasmus is talking about, where I can apply as a founder, how does the mechanics of that work? How does somebody 
they just find there's like a web form that we can include in the show notes for people to to, to apply. Yeah, I mean, they can just go on our Marantix.com website. And I mean, there they can basically um, reach out to us um, through, through the website. I mean, they can also have, feel free to message me on LinkedIn um, or, or on Twitter or um, on any other platform. And then basically we will have a couple of discussions with you. Ultimately, we want to get to know you. So the first couple of discussions will be more like interview style, but not like, you know, like a job interview, but really getting to know you as a, as a person. Like, what are your ambitions? What have you done in the past? So you as a, you know, character backwards and forward looking, but then also, and then obviously trying to assess, you know, do you have the founder criteria we are looking for? And then, um, which is, you know, strong ambition, really drive to, um, solve a certain problem or being in a certain problem space, maybe showing some entrepreneurial skills and, the, uh, and skills and, and track record in the past, even if it's not a startup, but within a bigger organization. Um, and then we'll talk a bit about you, about like, you know, areas of interest, like, you know, where, if you were to start with us tomorrow, where would you want to build a company in what application area? And then we see, is this like a fit from a founder to the idea or space perspective, but also is this something we're excited about? And so that's going to be a couple of discussions. And then we bring you two days on site. We fly you in and we really work with you and try to work out on a case for two days. And if that goes well, then you can join us as a founder in residence. And then we'll develop the idea with you over a couple of months, initially in four weeks, looking at four cases, kind of more high level, and then going deeper into one or two cases for like two to three months. Ideally, with the final decision gate of the investment committee, where we then invest a million euro and at that point, usually the founders have already a co-founder in mind and have worked with them for some time, maybe a couple of ideas of who they would initially hire. And what's most important to us, have two, three design partners, you know, like bigger corporations or other startups or whoever is your first, are your first customers that say, look, like if you, if you get this off the ground, uh, we would pay for it. Uh, we are willing to also commit resources to that. And uh, we want to become your first customer. And that's something we help a lot with our platform to to get that because that's kind of a bit the cold start problem, both in terms of you getting like, you know, people believing that even though you haven't built anything yet, that um, you can get this off the ground and there's capital and everything behind it. Um, but also for you, obviously, then to find product market fit much quicker because you can directly iterate uh, closely with a, with a, for the first customer. Your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. If this is you, you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, one. 37,000, that's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle, 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins, everything you need to grow all in one place. Download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com superdata. That's netsuite.com superdata. Yeah, very cool. So let me try to, I, I took some notes there, I think, as you were going through it to, to recap that back. So uh, people who have drive, maybe some demonstrated entrepreneurial skill in or outside of a startup, um, a clear area of interest. If they meet those kind of criteria, then they work on a case on site for two days. Um, if that goes really well, then they can become a founder in residence for uh, several months. If that goes well, then there's things like a million euros in initial investment, as well as uh, knowing exactly, I guess, at that point, who your co-founders would be, maybe some of your initial employees, 
as well as having two to three design partners, which sound like these are kind of uh, companies that are likely to be early customers and can help you shape your early product. That's correct. Yeah. And often it's even already contractual with these uh, design partners. So they really commit some like upfront fee and some subscription revenue conditioned upon you delivering obviously something. But um, I think that's quite cool. It's not just some fuzzy LOIs. Yeah, that sounds great. I mean, it's awesome to be able to get right from the early stage, have some traction, have some revenue coming in, be able to get product feedback directly from somebody who is your client yeah. using. Yeah, so very cool process. And maybe maybe just maybe just one more thing to add. I think like the the founders also have very diverse backgrounds. So I mean, like, you know, some come from corporates and have seen how it's currently solved the problem and then want to um, solve it the startup way some come from you know machine learning research and and see an opportunity from that perspective some have started done startups before um generally people have a few years of experience like we have few people that came right out of college but we also have those um many have you know a couple of years of experience um because we also tend to build on like these deeper verticals you know like healthcare bio industrials you know like some more complex enterprise processes and so it helps if you have seen that in the real world um, to know what problem you solve and also kind of be in an area where maybe, you know, you're, it's not so generic that there's a hundred other teams trying to do exactly the same. Yeah, very cool. Thanks for highlighting that. One quick thing is we mentioned all this, all these different Mirantics things, Mirantics AI Campus, Mirantics Venture Fund, uh, Mirantics Momentum. What is Mirantics? What does that mean? I mean... So, I mean, Mirantics, the name came up, actually, we had like, I guess we had some meeting, it was just Adrian and me, my co-founder, um, when, when we just got started, I guess we hadn't even registered a company and we had a meeting in an hour and we needed the name and you know, we liked, <laughs> we liked the, we liked like nature and the concept of growing things and kind of mm -hmm. trees. I mean, Sequoia was already taken, um, mm -hmm. but then we basically looked for the 10 largest trees in the world. And actually the seventh largest, I think is the Maranti tree. I think it's predominantly ah, in Indonesia. And so huh. we said, look, it's a tree, you know, it's, it's, it sounds somewhat nice. And then we just put an X at the end to make it sound a bit more technical. And yeah. that's Mirantics. And then we checked, you know, the domains, trademarks and everything. And that was all fine. And then we were like, okay, let's register it, go uh, next. Nice. Let's solve the next problem. So yeah. quite pragmatic. No, no agency or anything um, involved. It was just us. Uh, well, I think it's name, great. Like, short notice. It's catchy and unique, and uh, yeah, and it has this idea to me. It kind of has this this feeling of like mechanical, like a process, like this kind of like this like tech feel. Um, and so it it I don't know, like I get images in my head of like gears turning and like things building somewhere when I hear Morantic. So I think it's yeah, even I didn't know it meant a tree, but I kind of always had this mechanical idea in my head that that I think yeah. it's nice. Yeah, we always wanted to plant the tree actually here at the campus, but. Um, I think it's it's too cold here. It's too cold. Yeah. <laughs> it wouldn't be good to have like a skinny tree that's struggling to survive as like the... <laughs> yeah, that would not be a good signal. <laughs> it's not a good visual. Um, fantastic. Nice. And on top of all those things that Morantics is already doing, the momentum, the consulting arm, the venture fund, uh, the physical campus, on top of all that, you're finding lots of new ways uh, to be involved and make an impact in the world across policy as well as entrepreneurship. And so uh, just last week, I mean, we're recording this before it happens. So you're not going to have probably uh, you're not going to be able to talk about what it was like. Um, but at the time of publishing this episode last week, um, you were in Davos at the World Economic Forum with this AI house that Morantix launched. And so I, the concept there 
is to have a physical location at probably the world's biggest uh, annual meeting of leaders from all over the world, where you will specifically be highlighting the conversation around AI, the, the opportunities, as well as, I guess, making sure that we're mitigating the risks. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's a kind of the same concept as the campus, um, bringing together all the different stakeholders, founders, researchers, corporates, policymakers, investors, um, general public in, in one place and having discussions and doing business around AI. And so the campus is permanent. The AI house is a is a one-week pop-up during during the World Economic Forum. And um, we have a lot of stakeholders involved there. Um, so I'm I'm sure it was a great week. <laughs> I don't know yet, but I guess by <laughs> yeah, the time no this doubt. is this is published, I think we'll we'll have a quite tiring week and hopefully a lot of good discussions and a new a lot of new collaborations coming out of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No doubt. Um, and so, yeah, so with all of these kinds of things that you've been involved with starting yourself, um, as well as all of the AI startups that you've invested in or that have been incubated at the AI campus, are there some key factors that you can highlight for our listeners that make an AI startup successful or that allow an AI startup to attract venture capital? Yeah. I think especially in current times, and I mean, it sounds very simple, but I think um, showing like real customer traction and revenue is even more important. I think the times that you purely raise on research and, and, and you know, like fancy demos is, is gone for the most part. So I think especially if you're an enterprise or SME, like showing real customers using and paying for your product. And, and I guess it became even more important because we see now a lot of VCs also being worried about like, these so-called thin layers on chat GPT kind of companies where people are like, okay, you know, is this a real company or will there be um, the, the customer just use chat GPT in the future and that language model is powerful enough. And if it has integrations can do the job. Um, so I think the easiest way to circumvent this is actually showing, look like, no, he has a customer that pays like tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, for the solution per year. Um, and clearly more than the person would pay for a chat GPT um, and so there seems to be real value in this product because I don't know, maybe the, the language model is more fine-tuned on some specific data or it's like the whole product around it or workflow solution or, um, other reasons why this is a standalone product. So I think that's something a lot of companies need to fight. And I guess a lot of VCs are, I've been also scared about as these, um, horizontal platforms like the big cloud providers become bigger and bigger, invest a lot in AI, move very fast also, and try to catch a lot of this horizontal things. So I think we've been kind of generally more excited about like going into these deeper verticals where, you know, you solve a very specific problem in a deep, in a deep space. Um, you know, we have a breast cancer screening company, we have a protein materials optimization company and a computer vision company in the industrial space, like very specific applications um, because that's something likely a cloud provider will not do. And, um, but at the same time, obviously the market needs to be large enough. It needs to be, you still build a platform, but in a vertical, um, Whereas I guess on the general like tooling layer, you can still do stuff. And I mean, there are big companies there, but you also in quite can be quite dangerous water uh, there. And then I think related to that is also, I guess, the the founder, you know, like space fit, like do they have experience in that space? Um, so, so traction, but ultimately a lot of the concerns of investors, you can kind of solve with like real revenue, real customer traction, I think. And people start to look at, there's a lot of AI hype around it, but as now, most companies use AI here and there. Somehow every and no company is an AI company. And as such, also the same other metrics, I think, are often applied. 
Mine is obviously like hype and there's always FOMO and stuff about specific companies, but yeah. Nice. Yeah. This idea about the verticals, I think is a really interesting one and something that you at Morantix have been able to leverage to great effect because you can have different, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong about this, but my, my understanding of the situation over at Morantix is that you could have a machine vision company like Vara that is focused on breast cancer detection or, you know, these kind of radiology in hospital applications of machine vision. And then you can have another, um, which I, I think one of your big success stories, one of the companies that has already exited from the entire uh, Morantic system, SciSearch, um, that they were, uh, they were doing machine vision as well, but they were for, um, if I remember correctly, it was about like annotating video from self-driving cars, this kind of thing. And so you have two machine vision startups, completely different verticals, but they can leverage each other's expertise um, and maybe even some shared resources in order to be able to grow faster and make a bigger mark in their vertical. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think there's a lot of, I guess, you know, like commonality around, like, you know, if, if they use the same data modality, like the companies that use LLMs versus, um, you know, computer vision models, um, them exchanging on each other on, on the kind of technical side, general, I guess, best practices on ML ops, um, kind of infrastructure related things. Um, but also like procurement processes right now. I mean, you know, a lot of these enterprises are procuring LLMs for the first, second or 10th time, but certainly at the beginning. And so, you know, if, if you sell a big enterprise, like an LLM solution, like what do they need to like, what boxes do they need to take? Is there any, anything ad additional they check? Um, a lot of big companies struggle with this. And so that's something that our companies can share best practices on about like, how do you convince somebody in a procurement department that, you know, your, your LLM doesn't break any laws. And, and so I think these kind of meta level topics that are not specific and in that sense, not pure competitive advantage for you specific company are then shared across our companies and also across the campus. Yeah, it seems like there's even opportunities for companies to grow in the ecosystem itself that serve a lot of these different needs. So you specifically, they're talking about like security. We in episode number 736, when I was there in Berlin, I interviewed Jan Zavatsky, who his startup had, uh, is focused specifically on AI certification. And so this is something that uh, I think is particularly important in the EU because there is going to be some certification requirements coming down the pike very soon. Um, but is something, these kinds of certification ideas can be great regardless of whether there's regulations that require them or not, because it can show to consumers, prospective consumers, that your algorithm is safe, it can be trusted. And so it's interesting how the ecosystem supports these kinds of specialized companies, like something like that. Uh, Jan Zabowski's company can be then uh, certifying tons of different companies in your AI campus. So this ecosystem supports itself. Yeah, exactly. I mean, in Jan's case, I mean, in, in, in Robert's case, like, you know, with their company, there's probably like 100 customers on the uh, campus for them, but also design partners they can iterate the product with. And, you know, when the, when the new UAI came out and like, um, you know, there was more about regulation, you know, it was great to have them on campus and also see their perspective, um, as well as we have a couple of foundation model companies on the uh, campus as well, see their perspective, see the application side, I think. That's really cool. And that's like, you know, we have a quick like 20 minute chat. We bring the right people together. We can do it like spontaneously. And then that's something otherwise would set up, take much more time to set up or you might not even do that. And I think that's that's where the community is really strong. Yeah. yeah. And so for people that are in Europe, obviously the place that they should be thinking about if they want to be involved in this kind of AI ecosystem 
is that Mirantix. Are you aware? Are you aware of anything else in the world that is even remotely like what you're doing? I think, like as a broader concept, yes, but maybe less specialized. So I think, I mean, I highly think of the Station F team and efforts in Paris. I mean, as kind of an ecosystem, but it's and they also have now some dedicated initiatives on AI. Uh, but I guess more broadly, it's a um, you know, it's like broader startup ecosystem. But I think the way they think about the community, bringing stakeholders together, is is, is very aligned with what we do. Um, and I mean, there's other hubs like that. I think in the U.S. also often around, like I guess the university campus, you have a lot of um, you know startups, corporates, investors. You know, if you think about the whole Stanford ecosystem, just as one example of what's happening in Boston. So I think that kind of stuff is is often more centered there around universities, which we also have in Europe, but maybe less strong and. So that's why there has been more and more of these startup campuses um, to kind of create the density, especially in bigger cities like Berlin, like Paris, uh, London or so. But then so it sounds like specific to AI, because all of those things that you mentioned, those are about tech generally, tech startups. And yes, of course, right now, a lot of that is going to involve AI, maybe not a majority, but a lot of it is going to involve AI, if not a majority. Um, however, it sounds like specifically you're not aware of anywhere else that is like this AI venture studio or like an AI incubator specifically? Yeah, I mean, like I haven't met, I haven't met anyone. I think there's yeah. some venture <laughs> studios, there's some compasses, but they're all, that's why it's sometimes also hard to explain a bit what we're doing because we're doing so many things and they're all somehow play into each other, but it's not like your classic like company having one product or your one services company or your one co-working, it's all intertwined. Um, and that's, I think the benefit, obviously we try to, it's, it's the balance is kind of, we, we see each of these, initiatives as its own initiative with its own objective its own management team so really they have their own goal to push but because we are kind of the orchestrator of this and the initiator we can then kind of control a bit how they interact with each other and finding the right balance of them having their own focus versus like supporting the ecosystem is something we need to balance all the time and it's always a trade-off and at some point some of these organizations are more focused on themselves like the campus wants to be greater as a campus or momentum wants to grow more customers and sometimes it's more about how do we have momentum better act with our, into our founders or the founders more integrated in our campus. And it's always like a balance uh, to strike. And if you're interested in real business applications of large language models, I recommend listening to last month's episode number 743 with Pyotr Grudgen. Pyotr is the co-founder and CTO of QuickChat AI, a Y Combinator backed company that builds custom AI assistance for businesses. Pyotr and his team have been developing AI solutions since 2020, and they've seen a lot. In his episode, we talked extensively about the successful applications of conversational AI in real world business scenarios, how to handle hallucination problems, and the future of LLMs. Check out episode number 743, or if you're interested in building an AI assistant for your own business, you can just go straight to their website, quickchat.ai. Nice, yeah, and I can imagine for the companies or, or for the, the whoever's investing in your in Morantix, in the AI fund in particular, that breadth, you know, they're they're able to be all in on AI, which I think is a safe bet today, and probably a lot of our listeners on a data science podcast agree. But they're they're getting diversified exposure to a lot of different companies across a lot of different verticals. Yeah, I mean, that's also what we see with uh, some of the LPs joining the fund as an investor, that that's obviously financial investment with financial returns and with co-investment opportunities and, you know, access to the portfolio companies. But the interesting thing is, especially for some of the corporates um, um, into the fund, that they also have then an opportunity to see us as more like a strategic partner for AI. And they can co-locate a team on the campus. They can work with Momentum as a customer and become a customer there. 
Um, they can, you know, talk with us about the policy topics that maybe also at, have an impact on their business. So, and it's not like that we as a fund team that is not that big, you know, can can answer all these questions, but we basically have different organizations that can help them with that. And if they become an LP in the fund, obviously they become a very deep strategic partner for us. And I think that's quite unique, which, you, which maybe other funds also try to sell as an argument, but which is, I think, harder to deliver on when you are not, you don't have this ecosystem organization. And I think that's then also what we leverage again, because we have, if you have corporates in the fund, you know, there again, we can use them uh, for our, as a design partner for our new customers. So it's also value add for us um, beyond the money. Nice. Yeah. Um, and so for our listeners who aren't aware that LP um, abbreviation stands for limited partner. And so this is kind of like in VC funds or private equity funds. These are the the people who invest. And so I guess the uh, I think the term comes from this idea of uh, their partners because they're providing a lot of capital, but they're limited partners because they're not uh, they're not necessarily like controlling things specifically. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, so there's a term for you. Um, something Rasmus in terms of investment success, we pulled out from an interview that was published, uh, four months ago. Um, so this was, um, actually an interview that you did in German around, um, I guess in German AI is KI. KI, yes, yeah, KI, <laughs> abbreviated, yeah. Um, and so it's this uh, it's this interview that you did um, on KI, KI hype, um, and in it you talked about concrete metrics or benchmarks that indicate that a company has achieved enough in terms of data network effects or feedback uh, feedback loops that allow them to have a defensible competitive advantage with AI. I don't know, uh, do you remember that interview? Do you wanna talk about any of these kinds of things, these kinds of concrete metrics that AI companies can uh, can be looking to have in order to to show that they have a defensible competitive advantage? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, you're, you probably have more information now about what, what I specifically <laughs> said in the interview than I have and great that you, I mean, you speak German, I guess, uh, so you could could actually pull it out and, and not, not just use a language model to translate it. But um, yeah, I think, I think one thing we think a lot about is, um, you know, are there any like networks effects on the data side? And I think people have realized that some of these network effects are weaker than they think, because if you, I don't know, if you get access to a, a data set, that's a great head start, but somebody else can maybe from, I don't know, if it's a medical data set, go to another hospital and get the same data set. And so it's a head start, but it's not like a defensible mode. Like what we find more interesting is if you can, for example, build data sets that are not publicly available and that also um, you only create as you are doing business. And so I give you a concrete example. For example, we just started a new AI litigation company that basically can do litigation at scale using language models. And, you know, there's a lot of legal tech startups. There's a lot of um, company, you know, language models that, you know, are, are getting better legal and you can train them on a lot of legal text, but lots of people can do that. But the interesting data we will connect with that company is that once we've done like tens of thousands of cases, uh, at the litigation, we will know what arguments work well for which cases and uh, maybe against what other counterparty. And that data is so fragmented across so many, you know, like little law firms that nobody has even aggregated the data and it would be impossible to aggregate this at scale also because you can only aggregate it prospectively if you, in a more structured way, I guess, build your arguments rather than have like a chaos from hundreds of different law firms. And so... That's, I think, a data set we built in the long term that then allows us to create even better arguments in our litigation and maybe win even more cases and thus makes it even harder for other entrants to come into the market. And that's kind of, I guess, like network effects 
um, as you are in, start to be in business with your AI company and uh, data you collect, that is that is very unique to what you have versus others. And same for a breast cancer screening company. I mean, you can collect a lot of medical images and do partners with hospitals. I think what we have started to collect is like, um, you know, longitudinal data about the same patient coming in over and over again and also asking for additional information about the patient's history. And so as such, getting a much more concrete picture about um, the patient's history and using that all for our AI models and making predictions and training on that. And that's something that data wasn't collected so far. And so it allows us to be better than anyone else just looking at images. And this kind of stuff only works when you are in, in practice um, and when your AI model is deployed. And I think that's that can be very powerful as an AI company. Um, yeah. Nice. Uh, yeah, great, great breakdown there. It makes perfect sense to me. So these kinds of, if you can be collecting data that your competitors won't be able to get their hands on. Um, and so these network effects as you build your platform allow you to build better models, allow you to bring in more people. And so you kind of have this flywheel between uh, proprietary data that you're collecting, proprietary models that you could be developing, and therefore more and more uh, customers that you can get, the more value that you can drive for them. All right, so, and then actually from that same interview uh, that we pulled that information about uh, this kind of, these, these data network effects, um, another uh, topic that came up in there is how AI is moving so quickly that as an AI company, it feels like you can be, and I experienced this myself with my own AI company, you're trying to develop a product roadmap features that you think your, your clients will need. And so you're trying to look ahead several months and be planning what the engineering team needs to be doing, you know, creating storyboards, user stories, um, allocating the story points to particular engineers to be doing particular tasks and to be developing these product features. But with AI moving so quickly, and you touched on this a little bit earlier, talk, when we were talking about verticals, where you know it can be the case that what if GPT-5 comes out later this year and it completely has all of the functionality that you spent uh, six months or 12 months developing a special model for and, a sp and so with things moving so quickly, um, do you have any advice for startups that want to somehow be able to maybe um, not even just deal with this, but actually maybe uh, get some advantage from it? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I mean, I, I certainly don't have the, the full answer, but I think there is a few, and, and you know, always, there's always surprising new things that come out, but I think there's a few things to, to focus on. So first of all, I think from a, I guess, CTO perspective or engineering leadership perspective, I think it's important to have people that are not falling too much in love with a certain technology and also flexible to kind of throw everything away they've built so far if there's a new model coming out, even though they worked like a couple of months on this. So kind of, you know, not going into the sunk cost fallacy. I think that's super important. And that mindset needs to be in the whole engineering team and also being totally fine to, you know, use open source, use whatever is out there to be um, as efficient as possible. I think that's, that's one thing. I think the second thing is um, basically thinking really from the perspective of the big cloud providers of what might be on their roadmap um, and putting yourself in their shoes. And I mean, you see what they've published so far, so you can build your own mental prediction model of what they where they will probably go next and see, is this something, if I think about all the different things they could do, um, is this something they, 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 they might publish soon? Um, I think the other part is, if you think about model performance, I mean, for some applications, maybe UI model is not good enough yet. And I mean, I see a lot of people like saying concerns, you know, 
I don't know, there's still hallucination with language models and you know things going wrong. And here there are always some bad examples, but there I make it always very simple. I just look at like kind of the historic plot of like some accuracy score and then just like extrapolate it. And even though there's diminishing returns, usually there's some bumps, ups and downs, but usually that gives you a good um, indicator of how much better things will get. And you might not know how things get better and who will invent it. And if it takes a month longer or a couple of months longer or not, but like, you know, things get better. There's enough people working on it. So kind of extrapolating performance on these technologies gives you also, even if you don't know how we get there, gives you also an indication of what might happen in the future and how that might maybe make some of your technology obsolete or might be another technology that, you know, suddenly maybe replaces what you're doing. So I think that's 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 another kind of paradigm to give. And I'm, I actually, when I think about business cases, I always think about like, what if the AI model was perfect? Would the business case that make sense? And then I try to work back first and are like, okay, assuming it doesn't work that perfect yet, but like pretty decent, um, can I still engineer the workflow in a way that, um, you know, my customer is happy? And then as the AI model gets better, my value proposition to the customer hopefully also gets better. Excellent. Great practical tips there. Um, so clearly in this episode, you've already demonstrated tons of your chops around uh, AI innovation and getting tech startups going, getting founder teams together, getting product market fit, having a successful AI company, being able to exit. Uh, but in addition to all of that that you do on the commercial side, you also have a huge involvement in policy. So I regularly see I follow you on social media and I see you constantly hobnobbing with the literal heads of Germany and Europe and you know, speaking at German parliament. And uh, so you're playing a huge role um, in, in AI adoption, policies, regulation um, in Europe and therefore the world because Europe tends to be uh, the leader in regulatory frameworks um, globally. Unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to elaborate on that comment <laughs> i don't know i wish we were not the leader in regular regulation but rather in, in the building building impactful ai companies um but yeah that's what we have to work with i guess and i don't think we'll get rid of that reputation as europe uh, in the in the next decade or so um but yeah it's uh it's true i mean what you said and that's that's a big part of what you're speaking to when you're doing these kinds of things you're uh, advocating for the side of yes, okay, we need to be there, you know, some regulatory frameworks make sense. We want to make sure that we're not having a negative impact on society with AI. But simultaneously, we need to be creating an environment where AI companies, even early stage startups, um, can thrive. And um, yeah, that's the kind of argument that you're making, right? Yeah, exactly. I think like, I mean, like, the thing is, we have this regulatory train happening in Europe. And just, um, I guess, end of 2023, you know, the UAI Act got passed, which is a big regulatory framework on the European level uh, regulating AI. So um, kind of what I try to advocate for is that this regulation is in a sensible way. It It's fine to forbid some like high risk or like things we just don't want to do. Um, I don't know, like some social scoring um, things where, you know, we in, in Europe say, look, like that's, that's, that's a no-go. But I think it needs to be... Um, yeah, encouraging also building uh, people that people build applications in high risk areas such as healthcare, autonomous mobility, where yes, a lot of things can go wrong, but those are also the areas with the highest reward, right? I mean, yes, there is a lot of regulation, but because things can be really bad, people can die, but also if things go well, people are not dying that maybe would have died otherwise. And so I think flipping that narrative around is something that is very obvious, but 
still, if you read like the regulatory text and how things are communicated, they're always looked at, at from a negative perspective. And I think it comes back to the point that we are not benchmarking the status quo in a proper way. Like we humans make so many mistakes. I mean, doctors misdiagnose so much, you know, one and a half million people die in car accidents related every year. So like we humans are actually really bad. We make a lot of mistakes. There's a lot of points where, where you know, any AI would be much better. And that's our benchmark. That's what we're benchmarking against. And so if AI is, is by margin better than that, we should seriously considering um, employing it. And maybe it's not just the AI, it's a human and an AI as a backup. But like, I think that's that's the thing. And I think right now, a lot of regulators have like double standards. So they say, look, like the AI needs to be perfect, like no bias, you know, no mistakes. Um, but the reality is that's, yeah. that, I mean, that's great, but like, that's not the standard we should compare it to. And Bias so variance kind of trade-off, come on. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, then we should just have, you know, a random AI that just you know, makes a random decision. Then, you know, we probably yeah. won't have a bias, but uh, that's probably also not solving the problem. Empower your business with Profits of AI, the leading agency for AI and robotics experts. Whether you seek a captivating keynote speaker, a company workshop host, or even guidance in implementing AI seamlessly into your organization, Profits of AI connects you directly with the luminaries shaping the future of AI, such as Ben Gertzel and Nell Watson, both of whom have been phenomenal guests on this very podcast. Whether you are a large global enterprise or just beginning your AI journey, Profits of AI have a solution for you. Their speakers have graced the most prestigious stages around the world, and now you can head to ProfitsofAI.com yourself to see their full roster or to the show notes where we've got their contact link. Yeah, I guess the, uh, I was just kind of doing some extrapolation, some, some projecting in my head. Uh, with you talking about so things like self-driving cars. So let's say um, it could even be the case today that self-driving cars are safer per kilometer driven than a human driver. Um, if we get to a point where it's clearly demonstrable that it's 10 times safer uh, to be in a self-driving car or to have self-driving cars on the road as opposed to having humans behind the wheel, it is interesting to think following that logic that potentially Europe could be one of the places that is first to say, actually, you know what? We can't have any human drivers. <laughs> um, <laughs> that that could be actually really interesting that I guess for some of these high risk areas, we then say, look, like humans are just too um, too risky at all. I think that, that would be a nice switch around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I would exactly. love to see that. Yeah, that'd be cool. Um, yeah. So you're also something that we haven't mentioned on air yet. Um, is that you also lead the German AI Association. And so I think that this is um, this is probably a big part of, of how you're able to have uh, influence uh, on policy and, and be able to kind of um, get the, the zeitgeist, uh, to use the German word, beyond not just the Marantix AI campus, but um, across AI startups all over uh, Germany and Europe. So just a few minutes ago, with you making that joke about, unfortunately, Europe being a leader in AI regulation, um, you know, that that's a disadvantage of Europe. But are there advantages as well? What are, you know, if somebody's thinking about creating a startup in Europe or investing in a startup in Europe, are there advantages um, relative to investing, say, in Silicon Valley or elsewhere? I mean, like if you if you look at from a regulatory perspective, I mean, if they if they now do it well, and right now the regulation is still like at a very high level, but now in the next couple of months they need to make it very concrete for use cases, then that could create more clarity for companies and especially for customers. I think 
the biggest bottleneck is not even with the startups or so themselves, but is when you then try to sell such a high risk risk application to hospitals, to governments, to customers, um, that the customer knows, okay, what you're doing is safe. Like the LLM is only trained on this kind of data, you know, not infringing any copyright. Um, and, you know, there it was tested against certain biases. And here, according to the UAI Act, um, you know, this is my model model sheet. Everything is fine. Like this could actually maybe accelerate some of the procurement processes, which I think would be very favorable. I think with the GDPR, even though also GDPR was a good idea and is a good idea, there was still a lot of uncertainty about like, you know, how the law actually applies. And if it creates more uncertainty than before, then it's actually bad. If it creates less, then it's actually good. So I think it could be an advance there. And I think the other thing is, I guess there are some companies already, as you mentioned, Jan Savatsky's company, Certify, that are focusing on certification of AI models um, and, 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 and these kind of things. So maybe also new business models that are created specifically in Europe. Um, and I mean, ultimately, I mean, this could also be like a role model similarly to GDPR to other jur jurisdiction as kind of how AI is broadly regulated from a framework perspective. And then obviously, if you're in one of these high-risk areas, it's good to kind of see what Europe has been doing because that might then also get applied somewhere else. But yeah, I think otherwise, I think Europe is, I mean, technical talent is is, is, is is also great here. I mean, a lot of great, the greatest AI research are sometimes originally from Europe, so, and or some are still in Europe. So I think, you know, even if you're, you know, maybe considering building a team here could be interesting. I mean, living costs are still much cheaper than in many of the hotspots in, in Silicon Valley or New York or so. So I think there's an argument for that. Um, and then also, I guess in some industries, I don't know if you're in the industrials AI space, you know, there's great manufacturing business here. So you might want to work with some of the best in class customers here. And that's what we also see with one of our companies, Deltia, you know, they started 12 months ago, first customers are all in, in, in Germany and Europe. And now they started to expand and sign first customers in the US. And so, you know, build a, the company and the team world-class here in Europe with really advanced customers. And with those label, logos now and that expertise, they're now expanded to the US. So I think for certain verticals, there's an advantage of building the company in Europe. Yeah. So yeah, amazing technical people, uh, lower living costs relative to certainly San Francisco or New York or even Boston. Um, uh, access to this amazing manufacturing, which I'm going to go into a bit more detail in a second. Uh, and then something else that occurred to me just as you were listing those is there's also a really strong uh, social security net uh, in Europe. So this means that, you know, you're, you're, it, it provides a bit of a security blanket uh, so that you can take risks um, because in, uh, in a country like the US where there's very minimal um, social security net relative to Europe, um, this even taking risks itself is riskier because you can be putting the livelihood of you and your family at stake in a way that maybe, you know, you can feel more comfortable doing in Europe. Yeah, that's an, that's an interesting thing. I've never thought about this way. I think in theory, this should to, should lead to more risk taking, but I would argue people take less risk in Europe. So, um, but if you're a risk taker, that's actually even better because you, you can, you can, reduce the downside more. But at the same time, I guess if you take risk, you're also even more fine. Generally a risk taker, you're even more fine with um, <laughs> risking to have a bigger downside. So. so let's see what's the causality there. But yeah, it's an interesting yeah. thought. I need to think about this further. Um, yeah. And so uh, I guess speaking about this kind of risk as well as manufacturing, 
Um, something that some of our listeners may be aware of, but the economies of German-speaking countries in Europe, which are often referred to by an acronym DACH, so uh, Deutschland, Germany, Austria, Switzerland, um, so the D, Deutschland, A, Austria, and then the CH in DACH is uh, Schweiz, so Switzerland. Um, so these economies are a lot of um, the, the business in these economies is driven by these, sta these uh, stable, medium, and small enterprises, uh, which are called the Mittelstand. Um, and um, this Mittelstand, while it is, you know, it drives manufacturing innovation and it's exported across the globe, um, it's definitely something that is unique to Europe. You've mentioned in recent interviews that these kinds of companies have longer sales cycles and some skepticism towards adopting new technologies. So I wonder if these kinds of things that you're describing, like clarity on policy in the EU, maybe that will also help the Mittelstand uh, feel comfortable with adopting new AI technologies. And that could then also help create a flywheel in Europe um, for AI. Yeah, I think so. I think like generally the whole like I guess like public discussion around AI and how it will change the world is is also reaching the Mittelstand, uh, all these traditional businesses, and I think also has made them more open to try out AI, employ AI. So I was just talking to a big Mittelstand company. It's a company making a couple of billion in revenue. You've probably never heard of it. You probably never seen any of the machines they manufacture, but they're like the the market leader in that and. And I was surprised how much they already started to employ AI in their, you know, in robotics and kind of root cause analysis and um, basically using LLMs for all their like back office processes. So I think it's starting. And I think a lot of these businesses, I mean, they've grown in the last hundred years or so by like incrementally improving some machine by like a percent. And, and that's so it's very incremental innovation, but then being best in class there. And now they also start to see that especially AI can be very disruptive to some of their business parts to maybe how their machines are used, analyzed, additional data products they can offer. And so, um, yeah, I think some of these companies start to realize that. And that's obviously an opportunity for startups because um, they will not build everything in-house. And, you know, many of them have been profitable for decades. And so they're, they have, in theory, capital to invest. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 it's a process. But for these kind of businesses, um, you know, if your startup is going after them, then then actually DACH, Germany, Austria, Switzerland is a great go-to-market. Awesome. Yeah, great answer. Um, and related to that, you know, related to specific things about uh, Germany in particular is Germany is renowned for its vocational training system. So Berufsschule. Um, so these are uh, apprentice, apprenticeships, strong labor unions um, that mean that uh, the blue collar workforce in Germany is highly skilled, really well respected, and is integral to Germany's economy and industrial success, including across these Mittelstand companies. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of pride in blue collar work, and uh, yeah, a lot of respect. I think, in a way that um, it would be nice to see. You know, for me growing up in Canada or living now in the U.S., um, it, it, I would love to see that same kind of level of respect that I see for blue collar work um, in Germany. Uh, in these other places that I've lived. And so I think that there, you know, that's something that uh, is also a strength for this area. So maybe there's, you know, AI companies where, um, you know, there's going to be technical components um, where for the foreseeable future, um, you know, some blue collar involvement is going to be needed. 
uh, you're going to have access to amazing highly skilled workers in that in in that region. Um, now, looking ahead, obviously, you are super bullish on AI. <laughs> you know, I'm sure you have a, a big vision for how AI can transform society for the better. And feel free to dig into that vision kind of broadly for us. But specifically, you know, talking about blue collar work and maybe you know white collar work as well. I wonder what thoughts you have on how AI tr will transform work in the coming decades. There's, you know, I think I'm getting off on like, <laughs> I'm providing a lot of like framing here. Uh, so feel free to cut, cut me off and just start explaining at any point. But, you know, so for example, one of the big trends um, over the past decades that people I think expected with AI was more automation of blue collar work. So robots in factories um, doing repetitive work but just now in the last couple of years, really the last year since particularly the release of GPT-4 last March, we've seen that actually suddenly it seems like white collar work, cognitive work, that is going to be much easier to um, scale up and replace. So yeah, so I guess I'm getting, uh, there's lots of things here. It's like one, what do you see as like the future, the big impact that AI can make positively in society? But also, how is this going to affect work, white collar work, blue collar work, et cetera? Yeah, I think I think for me, I mean, the blue and white collar split and like, you know, what is the average income of the kind of job you're disrupting by that classifying what AI disrupts, disrupts and whatnot, I think might not be the right way to cut it, even though that's how I guess most people cut it. I think about it more in terms of like how many like data modalities do you have to interact with both on where you get data from and where you create data. And so like jobs where you pretty much just interact with one data modality and maybe don't need to interact with, much with people, the physical world. Um, and that could be a lawyer, but that could be also somebody in customer support. Both jobs, I mean, you're, if, you're, if it's text-based customer support or a lawyer, it's also text-based, it's often like contracts. You're interacting with, you know, you're reading what either the customer writes or what your client maybe wants in an email. So both the text and then you create stuff. Right? You answer in customer support or as a lawyer, um, you basically draft a contract. Now, one thing is much more complex maybe than the other, and that's why the person gets paid more. But in the end, it's the same kind of modality you interact with and some of the same process from an AI perspective. And so I think both things will disrupt it. And we've seen that for an LLM, it doesn't make matter so much if the, the, the topic is more complex or less complex. It's just a matter of, do you have the data around this topic? And then you throw it in. And then it's going to be really good. And so both things will probably be or definitely be disrupted, but it's not by, um, you know, um, pure salary or white versus blue collar or more complex, less complex task. Um, whereas like, I guess jobs that, you know, especially with the, with the physical world where you need probably robots to do the tasks, um, you know, whether it's, um, you know, like uh, care in elderly homes or, you know, like nurses or, or maybe even service and restaurant, um, but maybe also management jobs that are a lot about meeting people also in person, um, you know, resolving conflicts like um, these kind of things maybe take longer to disrupt because you need to interact with a lot of different mod modalities. Um, and that that becomes harder because you're you also have text, you have presentations, you have calls, you need to meet people in person, you need to travel like that kind of stuff will be, be harder to replace. Um, but I think these singular mod modality things, I think there we will see more progress. And But I think, I mean, we also start to see more AI models that are better with multimodal. I mean, 
images and text, obviously, but um, maybe also for, for pharma, including biological data, there's some multimodal models now that also, you know, then can work with robotics and with robots and also text. So that will also maybe expand the scope. But I think, you know, ultimately all these jobs will, will be changed for some, some parts will be of a job maybe will be fully disrupted. I don't think the lawyer as a total will be disrupted, but there will probably be maybe some of the easier litigation cases, like what we try to disrupt, will be disrupted now. You're in a billion dollar private equity transaction where it doesn't matter how much the lawyer costs, but and you can't afford single mistakes and you don't mind paying like 10 people, that maybe will disrupt it later. So I think it's often also just certain chunks, even within customer support, some of the easy requests are already automated. Now, some of the more complex ones, you know, you still need to talk at some point to an agent because just not all the data is in the system. And so I think we'll see certain parts of the jobs getting disrupted. And as such, also maybe job profiles change because, you know, like it's not the same job as it was like now in 10 years. And so it will be very vibrant. I think in like 10 years, the, the work world will look very different. But ultimately, for every day we work, I think we will be more productive um, because there will be stuff that we can automate. And that's exciting. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you selected lawyer there for a lot of your examples when that same kind of single modality, especially when you think about, I mean, me since the pandemic, I'm completely remote. And so data science work, software development work, this is really, this is strings of text that we're creating. We're taking in uh, natural language instructions, maybe from a project manager or a user or an executive and converting those natural language instructions into strings of code. <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, like, I know, I know your your audience and listeners. I didn't want to, <laughs> I didn't want to, you know, talk too much against them. But at the same time, I mean, many of you are using Copilot and similar tools, so um, are getting supported when when writing code. And I think we again will see the supercharge of the the software developers. Um, and some parts, maybe humans will not write the code anymore, and you know, maybe many software developers will more uh, move into a, you know, like a architecture design kind of role and then a lot of the actual code will be written by machines um so in that sense software developers are also moving up the stack um so i think that's interesting which which is like so you somehow do less but you will do the more complex thing because you might have right. to like in a very abstract where figure out what you want to build and then the whole coding somebody else will do like the machine um yeah but it doesn't mean the task is easier it's the same <laughs> with like i guess when when teachers now complain about like um, students like not writing their essays anymore because ChatGPT writes them for them. Sure, but like then, like telling ChatGPT how to write it to answer the question. Well, that's and then reviewing what ChatGPT wrote and you know iterating. That's kind of more what the teacher does. It's like grading it right and like trying to optimize for the best grade. And you could argue that that's a harder role than actually writing it. Um, so, right. Yeah, I think we'll just use these tools all get more productive and, and our jobs will change. And that's exciting. And yeah, yeah. I, I agree. It, it moves us up the value chain. Uh, a talk that I gave in uh, early 2023 centered around this idea of the data scientist, thanks to these foundational LLMs, things like GPT-4, um, it allows data scientists to become more like a data product manager. Because you can be thinking about, you can just think about what would be the ideal model for my users, and then you can be orchestrating one or more of, as you say, you said somebodies of these machine somebodies to be, you know, you can be delegating different parts of the work and you can be 
uh, generating the data or simulating the data that you need to create really powerful models. Um, or you can be leveraging um, existing LLM foundation models or fine-tuning them to your needs. So there's suddenly all these ways, whether it's with code generation or access to models, uh, be they open source or proprietary, that allow us as data scientists to be way more powerful than ever before. And so, you know, we can spend less of our time down in the weeds of trying to get some two different libraries to interact together the way that we want, or, you know, to uh, generate the code for a neural network. Those kinds of things can be automated and we can focus on bigger picture, higher value things like what does our user really need and how can I use this abundance, this abundance of tools in order to deliver on that need. But like coming back to the points, I mean, exactly this interaction with the user and understanding the needs, that's again, like you probably need to switch a lot of different modalities. You need to talk to the users. You need to physically go there. You need to see them interact with the product. Um, you need to have then conversations, feedback. Like it's a lot of like different data sources where your information comes from. And the more complex that becomes, the more it still needs the human. But then once you know what you want, turning that into product, you know, that's just in a single modality. And that's then, you know, just write a ton of code, generate that, and then uh, have it work. And then you go again back to the user. So uh, it kind of fits in that framework. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, great discussion there. And I think that ultimately, for me at least, it seems like all of the historical research suggests that these kinds of things, while the work changes, while we need to be adaptable as data scientists or entrepreneurs to this fast-moving AI ecosystem, Ultimately, all of the automations historically, and there's, I mean, sometimes people are like, maybe this time is different, but any other historical automation has led to more jobs than fewer. And so based on that historical precedent, it seems like this AI transformation that we're currently undergoing will simultaneously lead to more jobs. Um, and, <laughs> and that is what we're seeing. I'm it could be other economic factors that are involved potentially right now, but it is interesting that at this same time in history that we're seeing AI proliferate and advance at a speed never seen before, simultaneously we're seeing some of the lowest unemployment rates in decades or ever in economies all over the world. Yeah, and I mean, we also have to keep in mind that for many roles, I mean, you know, we have a, a lack of people just doing the job. I mean, for a lot of lower skilled jobs, um, for a lot of rural areas, it's very hard to sometimes find, you know, like doctors in like the countryside um, or, you know, people and the customer support at scale. And so people struggle with that also with like a lot of like geopolitics, like there's more reshoring, like nearshoring again. So people are bringing maybe some processes back, back to the country, to the US or to Europe and you need a lot of people for that and we don't have them. I mean, we're, we're making two little babies, like, you know, um, in that sense, you know, also with the baby boomers all retiring now, there's a high demand for like, um, you know, more, more people and workforce and we just don't have it. So the only way we can even just keep our current system running is supercharge the people we have that work with AI. And so that's why it's, it's, it's really important um, to keep kind of society going uh, in the next decade. Yeah, and I guess we see that in places like Japan, where they have one of the oldest average ages, one of the smallest uh, workforce to retired population ratios. They also have, I believe, the highest rate of uh, robotics um, adoption. 
Yeah, it's the same. It's like uh, for elderly care, do you want to have a robot caretaker? I don't know. But do you want to have a robot caretaker rather than nobody? Probably yes, right? So I think, um, and maybe at some point we like it more, right? Like we don't know yet. I mean, that takes some time adoption. Depends on how good it is. But I think sometimes I think we also need to face reality here. Um, yeah. Where we are right now with, with kind of global society. Yeah, it's an interesting point. I mean, so like you asking that question, like you kind of think, do you want your... Uh, your elderly parent or grandparent to be taken care of by a human or a robot, maybe today you say the answer is human uh, because, you know, that feels like you're kind of doing more of the right thing. They have more interaction. But it could very well be the case that in the not too distant future, maybe even today in specific circumstances, you could have a robot that is actually way better than a human because, you know, let's say, you know, somebody has advanced Alzheimer's, a human can't have the patience to just be constantly reminding about the same things. Whereas a robot can have infinite patience and can yeah. maybe do a much better job even today in that kind of scenario. Yeah, and is never tired and is always in a good mood and you know is always reliable. And I think it needs to, a certain point of just accuracy, and then I think it also works. And also, I mean, you know, if if there's not enough people, we don't have choice. I think it's the same for customer support. I think that's always a great example. Like ten years ago, I mean, I hated chatting with these customer support bots because they were so stupid. Um, I mean the, the the language one. Now, I mean, sometimes I don't really know anymore who I actually talk to. If it's like a like a LLM or a human, because the LLM start to get so good, and I I mind it actually less because I know you know if the LLM solves me my problem, um, you know, then then it's great. And um, so I think it needs to hit a certain accuracy. And then also like if the waiting time to get to a human operator is like forty five minutes, um, I may maybe even more fine with taking up with the with the chatbot. So I think. I think it's just a matter of time getting there for most applications to get to this accuracy and also get to uh, the availability we have. Yeah, I think uh, Alan Turing, when he was thinking up the Turing test, he was very fascinated by the customer service need. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and now we have... I mean, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and now, yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, when I'm when I'm speaking to a customer, customer service chatbot, uh, especially in, in the last 12 months, um, yeah, I mean, I, like you're saying, I, I just said chatbot, but actually I don't even know <laughs> in so many circumstances. And so, yeah, the Turing test has been passed, uh, which, yeah, interesting implications for just how we monitor AI, because for so many decades, it was like, well, this is the this is the benchmark of, you know, uh, humans having uh, the same kind of capabilities or machines having the same kind of capabilities as humans. And now we see, well, it actually that particular use case that the Turing test was designed for. Yeah ended up being one of the things that we were able to master um, relatively a, easily in AI terms. Yeah. yeah, and it's funny, right? Like, because now, now, I mean, you know, if, if an LLM has read more data than a human could ever read in their lifetime, and, you know, right. you, know you suddenly can create actually models that, that outperform humans at many things. And that's, that's, that's really cool. I mean, maybe, yes, it's a bit scary, but ultimately also we have to be realistic that all the data that's based on this data that we could have se seen, maybe not everything at the same time. And so yeah. maybe the AI get will get new context and new reasoning and see things we wouldn't have seen, like between different data points. But overall, I guess bits and pieces we could have could have looked at ourselves. So um yeah, I think that that area is one of the most fascinating for potentially even in 2024, us seeing some big breakthroughs. Um, so things like the rumored uh, QSTAR at OpenAI, where instead of just being an autocomplete, uh, like GPT-4 is on knowledge on 
you know, likely strings, likely concepts from things that we already know. Um, something like QSTAR, this ability to uh, be able to take um, elements and be able to combine them together into something new uh, and draw new conclusions. There's, yeah, it's certainly really exciting. And, um, uh, you know, these, these kinds of ideas allowing us, again, kind of augmenting scientists or engineers so that they can be making um, uh, conclusions. So like you're saying, the LLM knows far more than the human. And so trained on a database of all the scientific literature in somebody's specialization, um, these, these AI systems, maybe even of today, but certainly in the near future, I suspect in 2024, will be able to, um, to make suggestions on, you know, research ideas or relevant papers, um, experimental ideas that where, you know, the, the human just can't possibly keep up with all the literature. And this also a natural extension of that. There's no reason why the AI model has to be just trained on the scientific literature in one vertical. It can be across all verticals. And so all of a sudden now you can have this machine that is, um, pulling ideas from lots of different uh, traditionally siloed verticals and making suggestions maybe even on who you could be collaborating with. So, um, you know, based on, yeah, so there's, there's huge, huge um, augmentations of, of human intelligence that I that I think these kinds of examples are, are going to be happening very soon if they aren't already today. Yeah, and I mean, like it's, I mean, I think we just need to be modest as humans that ultimately, I mean, we're just... We have limited brain capacity. We have, you know, limited data we can take in and and put out. And um, you know, there will be just areas where machines will be bigger, better, quicker, faster. And that's cool. Let's leverage them and let's let's have an impact. Wow. Well, that was a fascinating discussion. I think particularly at the end there for me, and hopefully for a lot of our listeners, is amazing uh, to hear your journey, Morantix's journey, which really, even though it's eight years in, which seems like forever in AI terms, I think by far the best is yet to come. There's so much more potential in the ecosystem that you're building. And so fascinating to hear about that. And then I love, love, loved how the conversation has gone into uh, these uh, longer term, more philosophical discussions on how AI will transform the workplace and life as a human. So thank you for those amazing insights, Rasmus. Uh, before I let my guests go, however, there's a question that I always ask, and that's for a book recommendation. Do you have one for us? Um, I think one book we talk a lot about uh, at the office, um, it's like, I think two years old is Super Founders by Ali um, Tamasep um, and a few others. It's about kind of like a more data-driven approach to um, what founders are successful and what are not. Um, so I think whenever we, we, we discuss a founder and like, uh, we're we're unclear about you know whether we move forward. Then you know somebody in the office pulls out some <laughs> data from this book and is like you know given this <laughs> book actually you know even though you might not think but this kind of trade is actually found in a lot of successful founders. So I think it's just a, a, a cool book to read. Um, and so um, for anyone I guess investing or maybe also looking for co-founders, um, it's good. Good. Yeah, or trying to figure out what skills maybe to develop uh, in order to be a great founder yourself. Fantastic recommendation, Rasmus. And for people who want to be able to follow your thoughts, and I do highly recommend that Rasmus is certainly someone to be following um, on social media because it's wild. Uh, the people that you're bumping elbows with regularly, the influence that you're having, 
um, on AI entrepreneurship and policy in Europe and around the world is incredible. So uh, how should people follow you after this episode, Rasmus? I think LinkedIn is great. I mean, Twitter also works. I, I use LinkedIn more. Um, so add me, send me a message. Um, and I think the other thing is check out the Morantix AI Compass. Um, register for the newsletter there. Um, and if you're in Berlin, um, well, if you want to come visit the campus, let us know. Um, or there's, you know, as we said at the beginning of the episode, hundreds of events happening every year. So just come to one event uh, and that way you can also connect with our community. Fantastic, Rasmus. Thank you so much. And thank you for taking the time. Uh, it's been an awesome episode. Maybe we can catch up again in a few years and see how the adventure is coming along. Thank you so much, John. It was a great discussion. Incredible to have Rasmus on the show and to hear how he's paving the way for so much AI innovation in the coming decades. In today's episode, Rasmus filled us in on how the best AI founders demonstrate tons of drive, entrepreneurial flair, and an area of specialized interest, whether in machine learning or a particular industry. He also talked about how to raise a good amount of venture capital you need to show traction with paying customers, have defensible intellectual property or product market fit that shows you have more value to customers than a ChatGPT Plus license. You have to show founders have experience in the space and focus on a specific vertical instead of trying to boil the ocean horizontally across all industries. And he also talked about how people who work across fewer modalities and have fewer in-person interactions are more vulnerable to disruption by automation while jobs that have physical interactions, so would require robotics, not just software, will be more difficult to displace in the coming years. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, the URLs for Rasmus's social media profiles, as well as my own at superdatascience.com slash 751. Thanks to my colleagues at Nebula for supporting me while I create content like this Super Data Science episode for you. And thanks, of course, to Ivana, Mario, Natalie, Serge, Sylvia, Zara, and Kirill on the Super Data Science team for producing another phenomenal episode for us today. For enabling that super team to create this free podcast for you, we are deeply grateful to our sponsors. You can support the show by clicking on our sponsors links, which are in the show notes. And if you yourself are interested in sponsoring an episode, you can get the details on how by making your way to johncrone.com slash podcast. Otherwise, share this episode with folks you think might like it, review it on your favorite podcasting app or on YouTube, subscribe if you're not a subscriber already, and all those other kinds of great ways of interacting with the show and helping the word get out about the show. But most importantly, we just hope you'll keep on tuning in. I'm so grateful to have you listening. I hope I can continue to make episodes you love for years and years to come. Until next time, keep on rocking it out there, and I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science Podcast with you very soon.